Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 4th, 2018, and this episode, 2338 of the Survival Podcast, 2338. I can't not see the 338 is in 338 Winchester Magnum or 338.06 in that number. Just one of those things. Pattern recognition. As far as patterns go, we're going to be talking about patterns today in a way because we're going to be talking about seasonality, specifically the season that we are headed into full bore right now, winter. I know that winter will not officially begin until the uh, winter solstice on December 21st, 2000. Uh, I'm in Texas, and we have mild winters. And it was freaking cold outside today. I did a video with the birds, and my hands were numb by the end of it because I didn't want to wear gloves while I was doing what I was doing. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's not freezing cold out there right now. It's freezing cold last night. And uh, I know how cold it is in the rest of the country because I pay attention, but also because I got scared last night. Let me tell you, I got scared. So last night, I, I, I picked up my MacBook, and I was sitting on the couch, and I figured, well, I better check the weather. I knew it was supposed to go down. Uh, to just about freezing last night, like 31, which usually I don't have to really worry about any of my pipes busting or anything, especially if, like, it don't get to 31 until, like, an hour before uh, the sun comes up. When, when that happens, it's really not a big deal. Uh, but I wanted to go, well, what's the rest of the week have in store? So I pull it up, it was like, tomorrow's high will only be 39. What? And the overnight low is going to be 23. But, uh, what? And... <laughs> And uh, it turned out that when I went up to Nicole's place this spring, I had added a location on my, on my uh, weather.com account, uh, one for Lancaster, Tennessee, near the holler. And uh, for some reason, it flipped over to that as the default, and I was looking at their weather instead of mine. Well, that's freaking cold. That's winter where I come from, folks, and I come from Pennsylvania. Um, so... It is winter, and it is becoming more winter, and of course the real uh, cold days of winter generally are those January and February days. That's when you just, ugh, you get the cabin fever going and all, but to me, the, the things just aren't the same without seasonal change, and I'll talk about that a little bit today, kind of some of my experience living in the tropics for uh, over two years, and, and what I missed in that. Um, but winter does have kind of a pause button effect for a lot of us. Not all of us, but a lot of us. And that's what I want to speak to today. What are the things we can get done in winter that we just don't get done during the rest of the year to make this time productive and relaxing and entertaining and fun? Uh, and, and things that we can do during this winter season, these two, three months of true winter, where when we come into spring, they'll pay off through the rest of the coming year. Because uh, that's how we make the most important use of this time. Maybe we move a little slower, we get a little less done, but the things that we get done are things that we don't get done in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, when we're so dadgone busy. And then when we come into that next year, everything's better because we took the time to do that. We talk a lot about prepping around here and the concept of the grasshopper and the ant, right? So you got the, the grasshopper and the ant story, of course, all summer long. The ant works his ass off, and the grasshopper fiddle farts away and plays and doesn't store anything up. And then in the real story, winter comes, the ant goes in his hole, and he's good to go, and the grasshopper freezes his little green ass to death before Disney remade the whole thing and screwed it up. Um, 
But the reality is each season offers some opportunity to prepare for the next. And that's what we're going to talk about from the standpoint of what we can do with our winners today. Before we get into that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is WesternBotanicals.com. Western Botanicals has been with us a little over seven years. And think about a company that sponsors you for seven years in the world of podcasting. That's a special relationship. Uh, Western Botanicals is one of those companies that's mission-driven, and their mission is to put a herbalist in every home in America. That's my kind of goal. One you will never achieve, so you can't ever stop striving for it. That's a goal bigger than yourself. And they do that by having everything you could possibly imagine that's herbal and legal in the United States. You'll find it at Western Botanicals. You'll either find expertly crafted formulas, uh, tablets, uh, ointments, uh, tinctures, etc., or the raw materials you need to make your own and the guidance to do just that. You can find out all about it at westernbotanicals.com. And guys... They're a huge supporter. They give away their premium membership package, which is 50 bucks to MSB members for free for the first year and, and half price thereafter if you continue to keep it. It's, it's pretty awesome. 20, it gives you 25% off everything they sell. If you use a lot of herbals like I do, that membership would pay for itself, but that membership is free if you have other membership that pays for itself an MSB membership. It's a hell of a deal, and it's only possible because they support us so strongly. Check them out today. I always go to herbs first when I can, and when I'm looking for herbs that I don't have growing in my yard, I look to Western Botanicals, and you should too. Next up today, ready-made resources. Back when I was a consultant, the, the, the thing that I always tried to get through to companies who would pay me for my advice is do what you say and say what you do. If you'll do that, the market will take care of you. They'll understand who you are and what you offer, and they'll respect you for fulfilling your obligations. Ready-made resources did all that without my, my consulting. It seems like the people that will actually take the advice kind of find it on their own. Because that's what they do. They provide all the resources that you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. And we're going to talk about stuff today like canning. Hey, they got stuff to help you do that. You know, we're going to talk a lot about the things that you can do in the winter this year to kind of get all your systems in place so that you can get on with getting on when the spring comes around and times get busy. A lot of the kind of things that you might need, ready-made resources has them. They have great people to help you out with lots of different stuff, solar and wind products, um, food preservation products, long-term storage food. They got it all. If it's a resource that you can use for your prepping, you'll find it at the company. It does what it says and says what it does. ReadyMadeResources.com. By the way, been with us as a sponsor nine years. I am so proud of how long our sponsors have been with us, but I also think that we need to acknowledge that not just because we're proud of it, but because if they support us that much, you should consider them when you need something for your prepping. All right, but before we get into the main topic of today's show, let's go ahead and take a look at the day in history. I'm going back to a day in history. You may not remember this thing. But I don't think there'd probably be anybody that listens to this show regularly anyway that doesn't remember what's going on about this time because we're only going back to 2009. What happened on 2009 uh, of, of this day? Uh, Amanda Knox, a, a United States college student uh, spending time in Italy, was convicted of murder in Italy. Uh, a very heinous, very graphic murder that after really looking at this case, I don't believe she not only didn't commit, I don't believe she had anything to do with And the legal system in Italy is a bit different, let's just say, than the legal system in the United States. I rail against the, uh, the 
legal system in the United States all the time because I do think it has its shortcomings. But man, Italy and a lot of European countries, it's it's topsy turvy, upside down on its head. Now there is a misnomer that in some of these countries, Italy and 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 France, uh, and no thanks to Dan Brown who does great work, but kind of really misrepresented this and Da Vinci Code, uh, that in in these countries you are considered guilty until proven innocent. By their own code, by their own constitutions, that's not true. You are considered innocent until proven guilty. But the entire process, you know, you say one thing, and what you do is more important than what you say. And one of the real problems, and I watched this incredible, it was like a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour documentary on the Amanda Knox case. One of the problems I have with the way that Italians handle justice, if you can call it that, is your lead investigator is your prosecutor. So the police person who is trying to prove that you're guilty is also the person that goes in the court and explains to the jury why you are. Now, one of the things we have in this society of ours here today in America that I think is very important to try to preserve some justice is what's known as a chain of custody of evidence. And evidence that a prosecutor has has to be handed off To, or, or to, that a, an investigator has has to be handed off to a prosecutor. And then the prosecutor takes that evidence and does something with it, whatever that may be. And we've had instances of prosecutors suppressing evidence that actually would help out the accused party, but when you have that chain of custody, two people know about something, and one of the things when it comes to anything that's kind of conspiratorial, and that doesn't mean it's some conspiracy theory about not going to the moon, but two people acting, two or more people acting together to change the outcome of something, the more people in the conspiracy, the more difficult it is to contain. And yes, when you just add one person, that because I don't know if you're going to say, you see what I'm saying, right? Even if you tell me that you're, uh, there's still someone else there that knows. When you have the lead investigator able to decide what he does and does not present, that's a real problem. Uh, also, There's a very theatrical component to Italian prosecutions, and there's a big concept of saving face. In other words, if you made a mistake, you can't really admit it publicly because that will make you look bad. Yeah, yeah, even if it means putting somebody in, in, in prison. And here's one of the things that was done to Amanda Knox that I find reprehensible. She was characterized in the European media, but it was because it was driven by Italian prosecution as being this very promiscuous, kind of, you know, crazy sex fiend type girl. And one of the things they used to prove that, with giant ass air quotes around it, was a nickname that she had that was, I think her Twitter handle or some social media account, Foxy Noxy. Now that sounds, that sounds really stupid. Foxy Noxy, right? Yeah, Foxy Noxy. Yeah, Foxy Noxy was her nickname when she was like, you know, Eight years old and played soccer. Foxy Noxy takes on a whole different word, world, doesn't it? And, and that's the type of trumped-up bullshit. Now, the good news for Amanda Knox is later the Italian Supreme Court ruled that the convictions were uh, not valid and ordered her and this other guy that was convicted released. Unfortunately for him, he's an Italian citizen. I think he's back in prison now. Because Amanda Knox being smart, and her family being smart, the day they released her from prison, she was on a plane back to the United States of America. Because then the prosecutors... See, and this is something, again, this is... <laughs> 
oh my God, you know. Uh, so the prosecutors appealed back to the Supreme Court for a retrial, and the Supreme Court stated that they should be retried. Um, the the guy that was involved in this was convicted and sent, sentenced to 25 years, uh, and I think he is in prison, and Amanda was co convicted in absentia. You didn't show up, you're guilty. Uh, and we do that too. Um, and then also sentenced to 20-something years. Uh, of course, she'll never spend a day in an Italian prison because we will not extradite her. I don't even think the Italian government's tried to get her extradited. I think they know what they've done. Uh, but I bet you she will never step foot in Italy again, and I'm probably sure she'll never go to the European Union because it may be easier to get her into an Italian prison from there. Um, in the end, I think the good news is she's not spending you know two decades in prison. The bad news is she spent a couple years in prison. Her life was permanently altered. And I do believe uh, this other gentleman, based on what I know, that spending two decades in prison or more in Italy is also innocent and, and had nothing to do with this, though it's not as clear to me if that's true about him. Uh, one thing I can tell you after watching that documentary, which was done very even-handed, it was not done as a, we're trying to convince you of, um, the Italian justice system is a disgrace. It makes ours look like probably the best in the world, if that's what you were comparing it to, is for all the flaws we have. But, again, this was back on this day in 2009. With that, let's go ahead and get into this main topic today, which I do think we'll have a good, fun show and enjoy it. And I was going to talk to you guys today about uh, the United States debt, um, financial problems that I see us heading for. And I realize that's just not a topic for right now. Let's do something fun. Because all this is getting prepared to deal with situations that, you know, we may find ourselves into. I, I don't see us ending up in a James Wesley Rawls road warrior-like financial breakdown, but I see real problems ahead. And the more we put our own households in order, the more we're able to adapt and overcome whatever comes our way. And winter is a good time for things like that because we have the time again to reflect to plan, and to do things that we just don't get to otherwise. And it's not just like we're not busy on the homestead. You know, generally, your kids aren't in soccer or baseball in January. Uh, even football, you know, it's kind of wrapped up. You kind of have a pause before basketball season starts if your kids do that. The activity tends to ebb instead of flow in this time for all family activities, and it gives us time. And we also experience the changing of the seasons. And one of the things I kind of wanted to get your mindset around today was the, the, the traditional role of the seasonal changes in agrarian and horticultural societies. Um, society today has really deified civilization. And so we, there's a word that I just used that doesn't really get talked about much anymore, unless it's a job at like a zoo maintaining an arboreum, and that's horticulture, horticulturist. Uh, we talk about agriculture. And agriculture literally means the culture of fields. Horticulture means the culture of plants. You see the difference there. And a lot of our early agrarian societies that we think of as being agricultural societies 
were more agrarian even though they practiced agriculture. In other words, yeah, there was a big field of wheat out there, but every house had lots of stuff growing around it. Everybody knew how to harvest stuff from the commons, and that would be the, the open forests and things that people could go into, and the woodlands and the shared uh, properties, and various cultures all over the world, from things that were very tribal to things that were more organized, moving into even like feudal-type systems and things like that. People understood the role of all of these things that you could get from nature that you didn't necessarily have to plant, or that you could you know, pay a little bit of attention to. Let's clear the bracken out from underneath these apple trees and they'll do better and, and that type of thing. The Native Americans uh, were very horticultural. They did do some agriculture in some areas more than others. Uh, the desert southwest had a ton of agriculture uh, in, in these, these systems, in these cave-dwelling societies. They were like cities, thousands and thousands of people living in Uh, because the land gave less, they actually figured out how to make the land give more in a true agricultural way. But in uh, most of the temperate climate in this country, there was so much abundance available in the wilderness that these early agrarians were more horticultural. They would, you know, everybody's heard of the Three Sisters Garden, but people I don't think really understand this. The, the Three Sisters Garden, there'd be a big glade in the woods and you'd go in there and you'd take a bunch of debris and make a bunch of piles and like a like a like a hugel culture type thing and then pile a bunch of uh leaf duff and, and and soil on top of it and they planted maize call it corn um and they were very hardy varieties of corn and then beans and they're not green beans they planted beans that Uh, would go all the way to fall and be, you know, a hard, dry bean and squash and, you know, long duration, hardy winter squashes that produced a, a very storable squash. I mean, something like a butternut, I've, I've stored those a year in a windowsill. Yeah. Right. And then there's a double gain from the squash because you also have the protein of the seeds. So that was very horticultural. It was done in the forest. It wasn't done in great big giant fields of these things. And it was done in a way that you could just plant it and come back to it when it was time to harvest and everything that you wanted. Like it didn't matter if the corn stayed on there long because you were letting it go to a shell corn anyway. So there were these, this, this, this concept of horticulturalism uh, very much the case, something that very much I was turned on to by Toby Hemingway of his, as he made his journey from classic liberal to anarchist as he understood these ancient ways that people functioned in the past. And in all of these things, we had the dawnings of religion. And almost all of our major religious holidays today revolve still around seasonalities And they actually are linked to original pagan roots. So you can be upset by that. But I believe you can 100% believe in your faith and still acknowledge this. That, that Christmas was linked to that time of the year because it's around the winter solstice. That's why the early church decided we'll celebrate that day. It made it easier to sell to the people that they were trying to convert. But it also was very important. There'd be some recognition of this turning point keep society running because we're going to go through the cold winter now and, and, and spring and fall, etc. All of these times, if you look at the pagan faiths, have major holidays around the equinoxes and solstices because they were so imperative that people have some kind of a concept of a timeline of what needed to be done and when. 
And so that's kind of one of the, the roots to think about as we go into this winter cycle, which is different than all the others. The spring is an explosion of growth. The summer is the good days. The fall is the, the maximum amount of abundance you get to see. It's when you're going to the woods and harvesting mushrooms and shooting deer and you're harvesting the garden and you're harvesting everything. And then the winter is the pause. So think about that as we go through the day. The next thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the stuff you can do is the concept of winter rest and how important I think it is to humans and, and, and what you miss when you live in the tropics. So those that are new to the show may not know, I spent some time in the Army and uh, I spent... Uh, a little over two and a half years in Panama and Honduras, uh, in the tropics. There was there was no real winter there. Uh, there was a seasonal change. It was a wet season and the dry season, and it was always hot. Um, it, it amazed me that the native uh, population thought that it was cold at night because it would go down to like you know 84 degrees. It, it, yeah, and if you went up into the like the Cerro Azul Mountains, and it would go down. It was beautiful there. The nights up there would go down to like 72, sometimes 70, sometimes even 69. Uh, They're freezing to death. You're running around in shorts and a t-shirt, happy as a clam, right? Um, but there was no winter rest. And I remember how command, you know, our command was good, and they tried to, to let soldiers who weren't going home um, get a feeling of holidays and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that stuff. And I remember that most of us, especially those that were young and single, We really didn't care other than it was an excuse for another party. Um, and it never felt like, in Christmas, it never felt like Christmas. You know, I, you just can't, and I think if you grew up there, maybe it'd be different, but if you grew up in a place where the seasons change, and then you live somewhere where they don't, it's just really hard to see any what's different. The days are even about the same length. Doesn't even That doesn't even change much. You know, I mean, so... You don't get that, you know, the leaves don't turn color, the wind doesn't come up, it doesn't get a little more nip. And I think that there is something very, very primal for humans that live the homesteading life in feeling the changes of the seasons. It's not that the tropics aren't appealing to me. Don't get me wrong. If being able to grow pineapples and citrus and never have to worry about a freeze and, and do aquaculture through the entire year and everything, there is some appealing there. But I think that we should find the joy in what we have. And I do think there's a lot of joy in this transitioning of seasons and understanding our ancestors as horticultural people who understood how to collect from nature and give back to nature and how to grow and cultivate plants more than cultivate fields. All right, with that in mind, like one of the first things I'm going to say about going into this season, first, enjoy the downtime and the holidays. We're going to talk about, you know, we talk about get shit done, like GSD. That's a thing that I kind of, you know, I didn't make that term up, but I kind of really like, got that going as a concept in the, the field of regenerative agriculture and permaculture. We say that all the time on the Regen Ag group on Facebook. You know, get shit done. We say it all the time in the Facebook forum for a survival podcast. Get shit done. GSD, right? It's a thing in this community, right? Get shit done. So we're talking about shit to get done. STGD. It almost sounds like a bad thing. ST, right? S, but STGD, shit to get done. But look, there also is that pause. Enjoy the downtime. Enjoy the holidays. 
And if you get offended by the term holidays, what you need to do is go look in the mirror, get your right hand and kind of get it really revved up, kind of flip it around, and then just smack yourself in the face. And then get your left hand and smack yourself in the face and just keep beating the crap out of your own face until you stop being an idiot. I'm not saying to put Christmas on the shelf. I love Christmas. But this whole period of time for me, the reason I will say holidays from time to time is because it already started. It started with Thanksgiving and my family coming over and turkey and everything. And now we have the transitional period and my wife built the Christmas tree forest and we have that. And then even after that we have New Year's and I get to see my family, including the parts of my family that live close to me, more during this time of year than I do any other time of year. And I really enjoy it. There's times where we have family coming over and getting in. Oh, oh, yeah. Really, this weekend I had plans to get some work done and everything. And this time of year, I'm just totally okay with, hey, let's just enjoy everybody being here together. So do that and enjoy that. I think another great thing to do this time of year is an AAR. Now, those who are not prior service military and ain't spent no time around people that are may not understand the term AAR, but it is an after Action review. When I was in the military, whenever we had anything that was of significant importance to get done, a mission that was like, this is a three-day mission, this is how we're going to do it, this is how we're going to execute it, this is our contingency plans, once that was done, it didn't matter if it went off perfectly or if it went off like a disaster, there was always an AAR. We would sit down. What happened at this juncture? When was this contingency taken? How did this? What could have been done differently? How was this decision made? Who made this decision? Was that the right person? And we, we went through all of it. And that was so that as a unit, we would become more efficient. But as an individual, even if we left and deployed somewhere else into another unit, we would bring that perspective with us and contribute to it as leaders and as soldiers within that unit. And... You don't have to go that intense, but it's a really good idea to sit down right now and go, okay, what is what was what is all the stuff that I've done since this time last year up till now? You know, what are all the things that we did and 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 how do they work out? And 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 what's broken and what needs to be fixed? And what was a bad idea? What didn't work at all? What are we still doing that doesn't work? That really doesn't need to be fixed. We need to kill this thing. This, thing's, this thing takes too much time for what it gives back. We need to find something else to put this time, energy, effort, and money into with a better return. So along with the AAR, I think this is a good time to do a cost analysis. Now, you know me. I live and die by Excel. If, it's, if, it's, if I'm spending more than one day's earnings on something, or if there's any kind of recurring cost to it, it's going in an Excel spreadsheet, and I'm figuring out whether I should be doing it or not. You know, and if I figure out that it doesn't make me money, but I really like it, I don't know. No, well, just how much money it costs me a year. Is the joy I get out of it worth that much money? So I know the decision I'm making. So that's really an ongoing thing for me. But I think there's a lot of things that get away from us. We make estimates, and Excel says it's good, and Excel never lies, but it only has the information we give it. So if things change, if variables come in, and we don't update those, it doesn't spin them back out. And you don't have to be an Excel ninja to be able to do this. You can do this with a notepad. But if you're so, and a cost analysis needs to involve two things. It does need to involve money. That's the obvious one. How much money goes into this every year, or every month, or every week? Uh, and then conversely, you can calculate out the others, right? Uh, but also, how much time goes into this? 
And again, part of that is, do I really enjoy that time? Well, it's okay if it's, you know, if it would never work out paying somebody to do it in a business, but you really enjoy it, well, that's okay. If you're like, man, I got to do that again, and it's a lot of time, and you could be doing something else, then that costs too much time. So examine everything you've been doing, and then do a cost analysis against that, and make a list of things that need to be improved, things that are going really great, that you just need to keep, keep them going the way they are, and things that maybe need to be killed or transitioned in a significant way beyond a small improvement. Next up, let's start talking about things that are actually kind of fun and, and, and things you can do. Let's say you have a day, and you're thinking you have a day off as a Saturday or Sunday. You think, you know what, I'm going to go outside and work on blah, blah, blah on Saturday, and a week goes by, and... Old man winter and the weather guesser conspire to make your life miserable. And you look out that window at Sunday morning or Saturday morning with your cup of coffee in your hand. And you just think to yourself this, I ain't going out there. And if there's something you have to go out there to do, you're going to go do that. And you're going to bring your happy ass right back in the house. It is cold. It is miserable. And you just don't want to be outside. You're just thinking, I will be colder than a well digger's ass if I go out there, and I don't want to be today. Maybe it's even something I would do on a normal day, but I'm not doing it today. Well, this is a great time to pull up next to the fireplace, maybe put something on TV that's interesting but not that interesting that you don't have to give your full attention to. Pour yourself a nice hot second cup of coffee or Irish coffee or whatever floats your boat. Sit next to the person you love and crack out what? Seed catalogs. Uh, this time of year is my favorite time of year for seed catalogs. And generally speaking, right about now is when I'm ordering all my new ones. And I have a link for you on uh, the show notes today that goes back to an old forum post. I did all the way back, I think, in 2009, so it might need some updating. A lot of other people posted things there. But it's a whole list of nine really cool seed and, and plant catalogs. And the ones I posted, at least at the time, were print catalogs. And you can spend time online with your iPad or your you know, laptop or whatever doing this. I, I love electronic books, but there are just a few things that I really like to be able to sit down and turn pages and read, and seed catalogs are one of them. Uh, not that I won't buy from places only with a website, but I like to sit down with, you know, the Baker Creek seeds catalog or what have you. Uh, even some more conventional ones like Parks and uh, Burpee and if print catalogs you can sit down and read about new varieties and think like, does this fit into what I want to do this year? Um, but it really is just a great time to go through those seed catalogs. And uh, again, a lot of places still do the print catalogs. You can go to their website, fill out a form, and they'll send you one. And right about now, if you order one, you're going to get the one that they have planned to sell to you this coming spring. Um, because they know that a lot of us are going to be starting seeds in January, February, March as well, indoors and things like that. So they're ready with that new information to get that into your hands. So take advantage of it. Um, next, this is a great time to sit down and just map out projects. So at this point, let's not even worry about what they are. Because my project this winter may be way different than yours. But a lot of projects involved, you know, things like uh, a bill of materials. You're going to need stuff that you don't just have. So then do we buy that stuff? Do we get that stuff by, you know, salvaging on Craigslist or local ads or next door or what have you? Uh, so what do we need? How long is it going to take to do? 
Do I need any specific help with it? Do I need to have some portion of it done by a professional? Maybe some electrical work or something like that. I run my own wire and stuff, but I want them to come put the circuit down for me. All of that stuff. And taking that time to map that stuff out, because what I find happens with projects that, even if I don't do them till spring, but projects that I plan in winter usually go off really good. Because in winter, I have that expectation to have more time. I'm willing to be more patient. I'm willing to be more methodical. I'm willing to look outside and go, it's cold. I'm not going out there today. The hell that. No, no, I'm not. No. So, so now I'm going to be inside all day. So I don't mind sitting down at my desk. I don't mind sitting down on my computer and spending more time getting a good concrete analysis. And, and then being able to, when you plan something now, But you're not going to do it for a month, assuming you can avoid analysis paralysis. One of the beauties of that is you have time to keep thinking about it. And it keeps going around and around in your head, and you catch things you would have missed. Oh, well, look, I'm planning on doing that that way. But with that conventional hinge, that door's not going to open right. That type of thing. And so you catch your little mistakes, and you go back and you correct them, and you get a really solid plan So that when you eventually get to those projects, they go off better. And while you're doing this, I've already talked about budgeting and, and, and cost analysis. I think that one of the best life skills you can teach people to do is something that's called a takeoff. A takeoff is a construction term for an estimate. And um, a lot of my career was built because I was good at it. And I think your homeschool uh, parents, you need to teach your kids to do takeoffs. I mean, really, like, let's come up with a project. Whether you're gonna, and that's the beauty. You can do a takeoff or something you can never afford to do. That's actually a good idea because it gets complicated and involved. You know, how much would it cost to fill in the blank? And you start plugging in line items in Excel. And there are, you know, when when I was in structured cabling, we had a, a customized version of Microsoft Access that we used for these that merged kind of the spreadsheet functions with a database of pre-approved parts and stuff like that and word processing for Microsoft Word where you could do the write-ups and stuff like that. But you can do this in just a straight-up Excel spreadsheet. Now, you're going to have to learn things like basic formulas, percentages, markups, and things like that to be able to do it. But... You know, you can say, like, what are all the stuff we can do? What about what we can't do? And if you just need, well, we're going to need an electrician for that. Um, you know, if you call McBride Electric or somebody like that, a national chain, say, hey, how much is it going to cost to do their, well, we don't know. We'll have to send a ticket. If you can figure out, that's about two hours of work. Uh, you can call up and a local electrician say, what do you charge by the hour? And they'll tell you. You say, okay, well, we'll put two and a half hours in there or three hours to be careful and throw that number in there. And all of a sudden you start coming up with a, an accurate estimate of material quantity, labor hours, and total cost of a job. Let me tell you something. We talk all the time about trades on this show. You know, kids going to welding school instead of getting a degree in bitterness studies, something like that. Being able to do an accurate cost analysis of a job opens doors. It opens entrepreneurial doors and it opens employment doors. If you can go in, I mean, I know one of the first times I really made an impression for a guy I was working for when I started in structured cabling was I ended up in between projects, and he needed somebody to do a couple job walkthroughs, and he figured I'd go out there and just give him an idea of what they were. And when I came back to him with completed takeoffs, 
Here's what you're going to need. Here's how many people you're going to need. This is what I would use. This is what the customer has already on site. He was blown away, and I got all kinds of opportunities after that. And it was because I taught myself how to do it, but I didn't teach myself how to do it for work. When I first taught myself how to do it, it was because I wanted to understand how to do a cost analysis on things I wanted to do for myself. So this is a fantastic homeschool project in addition to a good skill for everybody to develop. You you can't be in a situation where you're looking for employment and you're willing to take you know a trades job, a sales job, anything like that, where you're going to interact with the customer, where when you're talking to a prospective employer, you go, well, I know how to put together takeoffs. And they go, oh, we don't give a shit. No, that always a light bulb goes on. Because that is, when you get that right, everything goes right. When you get it wrong, you lose your ass. And when you do it for your homestead project, losing your asset isn't that big a deal. It just ends up costing you more and you learn from it. But when you're you know, doing a job and you're going to put 100 people on it with eight hours of labor a day for three months and you screw something up, you can lead a company into bankruptcy. So when you get good at doing this, you're marketable beyond what we're talking about today. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, next up, great time to set up your seed starting system. Most of the country, in most of our temperate climate, kind of the time that you would be starting your pepper seeds, your tomato seeds, and stuff like that, is about the second, the first through third week of February. There's quite a bit of time between then and now, and setting up whatever you're going to do for seed starting, if you're going to do that now, lets you get everything fine-tuned so that when it comes time to do that, you don't start out from behind the gate. And also, I'm going to say use some patience here. Uh, we've done other shows on winter gardening, do some research in the area, last frost date, etc., and about how old you want that plant to be when it goes in the garden and how much pot size and space it's going to need to become that big in that amount of time. One of the biggest mistakes I see with people doing seed starting is they all want to start 500 million plants. They ain't even got a place for them. But they want to make sure they can start, let's say, 500 plants. And to do so, they're using like 78 or even 144 cell um, plant trays. And they got little bitty root systems on them. Well, you can only grow a little bitty plant with that. Now, if you take that and start that plant, I don't care how much protection it gets, but in January 15th, and let's say that you can plant out about the end of March, and now you've got 12 weeks for that plant to grow in that little bitty hole, it's going to stunt. It's going to get stunted, and when you put it out, even if it looks good for its size, it's never going to be what you could, it could have been because you've stunted it. In its early days, you've basically bonsai it, and you weren't using a tree you wanted to put in a pot and make into a Japanese masterpiece. So we need to really think about, again, the size of the start and the time of the start and the duration in that size pot. And either we're going to plan on potting up to a larger container or we're going to start out with a larger container. I just think it's easier to start out with a larger container. And this is the way I look at it. Even if I had to place plant them all. I would rather put out one to two dozen, you know, eight-inch tall, bushy, happy pepper plants than 128 little bitty miserable ones. Because those big bushy ones are going to be, you know, 60 days into production in the spring starting to put peppers on for me. 
And then they're going to produce peppers throughout the year. And ditto with tomatoes and ditto with everything else. So really think about your seed starting and the timing and the size and the spatial requirements necessary for what you want to do and what you want to be putting into the ground and when. That's why this is a good time to do it. Because if you wait until, like, oh, I really should have got those planted last week, then you're going to half-ass everything and do it too quickly and make mistakes. And remember, when I talk about gardening, gardening is a skill. Starting seeds is a skill. It's really good to separate that skill, that's, that, that, those skill set developments. So by doing this now, you have plenty of time to work on that skill set as you head into the actual planning time. Next up, um, enjoy some of your non-homestead hobbies. I thought I'd throw that in kind of midstream here. Um, we talk so much about prepping and, and all of the stuff that we want to do that involves self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And that's great, man. That's, that's core to who, who and what we are here. But most of us have things we like to do that may not be directly related to that. If we develop them into side hustles or something, they may be indirectly related to it. But I mean, for me, you know, I've been mentioning it more and more frequently lately, but one of my big hobbies is, is tropical fish. I have a pretty awesome tank room I've developed, and I have some other things that I want to do with it. And I'll spend quite a bit of time this winter doing that. First of all, because it's inside and it's warm. You know, but again, I have the time to do it, and it's the right time of the year for it, and I get enjoyment out of it. Uh, Nick Ferguson was here a couple months ago, and I was doing some tank expansion work that I've now got done. And my wife was talking to me and him both, and she said to me, Jack, you do so much. You know, why add this other thing that you have to do to your life right now? And Nick, being the buddy he is, you know, goes, Hold on, I got this. And I was like, I'm going to wait to hear what he has to say. He said, he doesn't have to do that. He gets to do that. And and that's kind of how I feel about my fish tank. So whatever it is you feel that way about, you know, spend some time uh, developing that part of your life. Because I really, like, I guess if there was a true overriding yet unspoken theme to what TSP is all about is developing the modern renaissance man. The person that knows a, a, a little bit about a lot of things and a lot about a significant amount of things and a great deal about a few things and is expert in one or two. That's the modern renaissance, man. Because when you get totally specialized, there's the old quote, I don't remember who said it, but it ends with specialization is for insects. And... It, when I think back to like my grandparents and, and, and my great grandparents and my great uncles and the amount of stuff they knew and the things that they could do, it kind of blows me away. And, but then I sometimes I realize, you know what, you're still thinking like 15 year old Jack Spearco looking at your great uncle Pete going, how the hell does this man know everything from how to breed pigeons to how to reload ammunition to how to tie a fly? to how to build a knife, to how to build a cabinet, to how to clean a gun, to military history, to, you know, we're exactly on the mountain to go for this thing. And, you know, I, I sit back and go, wait a minute, I, I know all that stuff now too. And sometimes it's hard to even admit because I'm like, okay, am I saying I'm, I'm, I'm an equal to my grandfather Andrew? Am I saying that I'm an equal to my great uncle Pete, who was a staff sergeant in World War II? 
and told me a story about how bad a woman needed some soap and he couldn't afford to give her any because he had his last little piece and didn't know when they would get resupplied. Am I saying I'm an equal to those men? And on some levels, no, I'll never be their equal. On other levels, though, some of the things I really admired about them, which was what they could do, I've realized we all can become that. And so when you when you expand beyond just, is this for my homestead? Does this make compost? Does this produce meat for the house? You know, when you expand behind that and you find some things that you really love and you do those, you, you, you encourage that concept of that broad sweeping knowledge and development as a full person. So spend some time on that this winter. Um, a skill set that kind of is, you know, homesteading, prepping, things like that. But a lot of people that do it, They don't think about preparedness at all when they do it. They just do it because it's fun, kind of what I'm talking about here, but making mead, brewing beer, making wine. This is a great time of year for that. Uh, I'm about to go into full-on mead maker again, and uh, it's a great time for it again because I have the time, and there's days I just don't want to go outside. So since I don't want to go outside, let's make two, three, four gallons of mead a gallon at a time. Put it all upstairs on a thing, and it just takes care of itself, and... You know, we'll rack it in a few few weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, and bottle it you know, a month later. And, you know, next thing you know, it's spring, and there's a whole bunch of awesome mead put away. And you might think, well, Jack, you know, all of the, the messing with your bees and stuff, that's kind of done for the year. Well, yeah, and the honey's harvested, but I pretty much use other people's honey to make my mead anyway. Um, but, you know, well, you know, springs when the plums are on, so that's when you make the plum mead. Not me. No. I take a whole bunch of plums and go, that's enough plums to make a gallon of meat. I put them in a Ziploc bag, zip it up, label it, throw it in the freezer. The persimmons come on later in the year, throw the persimmons in the bag, zip it up, persimmon meat, throw it in the freezer. And all of those fruits that I threw in through the spring and the summer, when they got frozen, all those little cell walls <coughs> ruptured. So now, when I throw them in you know, a must, which is really what you call a, a, the work of a wine, right, which is the best thing I can come up for meat is it's a must, with honey and, and whatnot, they really share their flavors well, and their sugars are easy for the yeast to get to, and they develop into great meats. So I just think this is a fast, fa fantastic time of year for mead making, venting, brewing, making fuel that you might accidentally, you know, spill into your mouth. Uh, sometimes when I'm making fuel, I go out in my big, giant workshop And I turn on my TV that's out there, and I put it on something like the Outdoor Channel, uh, and I get my fuel maker going, and I'll spend a whole afternoon out there in the garage making fuel, but doing something else. Because making fuel, you don't have to really pay attention to what you're doing that much. You just kind of set it and check on it every once in a while as the fuel comes out. I've done that with some of my really great friends, too. We'll sit there and cook off a batch of fuel with air quotes around it, and you know it's a great time of year to do that. So consider things like that. Spend some time doing skill set development, and that can be about a lot of different things. But, you know, I talk about our sponsor knife kits all the time. Making a knife, even from a kit, is a skill. And it's not a skill. It's a series of skills. So we get basically a knife blank. It's already ground and shaped and everything like that when we do the basic way. But we also have to figure out what kind of pins we're going to use. We have handle material, all of that. So we have to epoxy and pin that handle material to the handle. Well, that's a skill. Then we have to shape that handle to the, to the, the form of the, of the tang of the knife. Well, that's skill. 
Well, then we have to shape the handle to the way we want the hand to interact with it. Well, that's a skill. And then we have to finish that handle. Well, that's a skill. Then we have to sharpen that knife. Well, that's a skill. If we want a sheath, we either have to use codex or leather and build a sheath for that knife. Well, that's a skill. You see how this is like, like how many skills are involved in that? And then once you do that, you know, you can kind of sit back and go, well, I know how to make handles for tools now. What else can I put a handle on? I know how to sharpen a blade now. What else can I put an edge on? I know how to make a sheath out of leather now. What else can I make a sheath or a casing for? For making a knife. Now, am I saying this winter you should go make your first knife? No. If that's something you really think is like something you really want to do, yes. When I think about it, I go, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing it. There's so many other things I want to teach myself right now. So many other things I want to do right now. Then that's just not my thing. And I think that's with skill set, skill set development, the way you get the best at the most is to find something that excites you beyond what everything else you're thinking about right now and then go do that thing. So maybe I'll reach the day where that goes to the top of my list. Maybe it's already at the top of your last list. But whatever it is, develop skill sets right now. And that can be in any and all things. Kind of on that note, this is a great time of year to get into the content creation online business world uh, where you have that extra time. If you don't know how to install a blog, learn. If you don't know how to manage a blog, learn. If you don't know how to do a post on a blog, learn. You know, If you're going to start building any kind of business, you're going to want to be using platforms like Instagram. Even if you're not, again, get off the homestead for everything. Like, what is it you're going to do? You know, John Willis with SOE Tactical Gear. Every day, he's got two or three posts of just equipment that they're making and shipping out. And he's got some like 14,000 or something followers on Instagram. People that are just loyal as hell to him. But they have that connection. Oh, that's what John's doing today. So teach yourself, you know, if you want to learn how to edit video, then sit down and learn how to edit video. Don't And don't worry about what you're editing. Just learn how to do it. And then when you go make a video, you'll know how to edit it. right? Teach yourself something this winter. Maybe a couple somethings. You know, if you've, if you've never really done a lot with power tools and you like to set up a home shop, this is a great time to do it. But, you know, that's how you cut thumbs off. Go to a makerspace. Learn how to use all the equipment that's there and then decide, okay, look, a table saw. For a lot of projects I have, this would be something that I'd use a lot. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to get a table saw. And now I know how to use it because somebody there taught me if I didn't learn. Because, you know, if you went to, if you went to high school, you know, mid nineties or later, you probably didn't get wood shop in freaking high school. We got wood shop in junior freaking high, guys. Right? I was using it when I was, what, 11? 12. 12 years old, I guess. In school, I was using band saws, planers, jigsaws, rotary arm saws, lathes, you know, and, and I realized today, like, when I talk to, you know, I call them kids, but they're 20-somethings, and I'm like, well, you know how to do this? No. And then you, you kind of pick on them, you go, wait a minute, shut up, jerk. You know how to do it because you had parents that did it, grandparents that did it, and you had a teacher in school in 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, and 10th grade teach you how to do it. And then I went and shop apprenticed for two years because I had taken all the industrial arts I could. Well, of course I know how to use all that stuff. But if you don't, go somewhere where people do it. Makerspaces are a great place to hang out and learn stuff. 
And you'll find, like, well, you know, a CNC woodcutting machine would be nice, but it's expensive, and I don't really need it that much, and I don't mind bringing stock down here and paying them a monthly fee to have access to cool stuff like that. But, you know, maybe a chop saw. Like, because I think, like, probably the number one tool that I use that gets plugged into a wall is a chop saw. I mean, that thing has paid for itself. I think I bought a, it's a Hitachi that I paid like 120 bucks for off Amazon. I have paid for that thing so many times and what a chop saw does for you. Uh, and not just wood, like a lot of my PVC projects. You know, you cut one inch PVC with a pair of cutters. You don't do that with freaking three inch or four inch or even two inch pipe. And yeah, you can cut it with a, a sawzall or whatever, but having a chop saw and just, and you get that perfect straight cut. Man, I use the hell out of that thing. Uh, power tools. I have, I honestly need to get some, some new stuff that I have on T-Spaz. Um, Porter Cable has come out with two finishing nail guns that I think are fantastic. And I'm just waiting for them to add a, a framing nail gun. And I might be divorcing DeWalt for some of their recent stupidity, honestly, and moving over to Porter Cable. Because unless you're a contractor out there every day, Porter Cable makes damn good tools. Um, and, and, and learning how to use those hand tools, that's another thing to spend time developing. Uh, but also, you know, think about makerspaces because there's always people there that can help you so that you know why you're buying what you're buying and what it will do and what you don't really need to buy, what you would, you know, use a facility like that for. Um, next up, how about making bone broth, canning soups, etc.? Um, and I'm going to talk about cooking skills in the next line item totally separately from this. Because I don't think you have to really have any cooking skills whatsoever to make bone broth. You know, you throw some salt and some pepper and some herbs and some bones into a pot and you simmer it for a long time. Until you extract all the good, and a little bit of apple cider vinegar, by the way, until you get all the goodness. And I usually make a bone vegetable stock, bone vegetable stock broth, where uh, I'll throw in a bit, you know, like the base of a celery and some carrots and some onion and stuff like that as well, where it, there's enough vegetable in there. We'd make a vegetable stock without the bones. And oh, it's so good. And this is the time of year where you don't mind making it because you don't mind all that heat being around for that. Uh, I make it a lot of time in my uh, my carry canner uh, because I can do it. In, I can do what it takes me hours or days to do on a stovetop. You know, I can do in a couple hours with the canner under pressure uh, canning or pressure cooking. And then you know, you take it out, you put it in jars, right back in it goes, and you do a, 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 a canning cycle, and you put four quarts of it away. And you know, if you do that every weekend during your winter. You have a whole buttload of stock, a bone stock, going through the rest of the year. And it's there and it's available to you for various things. But, man, bone stock is just such a nutritional, amazing thing. And it's something we should do more of. And I don't know why, but a lot of times it's easier to get, you know, bones and stuff like that from your butchers in winter. And a lot of you guys that are hunters, you know, that's now you have a big pile of deer bones available to you if you weren't a dummy and didn't throw them away because you're not afraid of uh, CWD from a deer that didn't have it when no humans ever got it anyway. Uh, you know, you, you use those, those bones, throw them in the oven, roast them till they turn brown, and make bone stock out of them, for God's sakes. On that note, expanding, like I said, 
upping your, your, your cooking skills, I think this is a great time of the year for that. You know, spend some time on YouTube. Learn about new dishes and try new things. Get on ButcherBox as a subscriber, and when the, when the meat comes in, make something different with it than you ever did before, whatever they send you. Um, it, it's fun to do. I've got a pork loin roast in the refrigerator from ButcherBox right now that I'm going to try to come up with my own uh, sausage, uh, an apple pork sausage. And it might be an apple, feral hog, and venison sausage, and I'm going to flatten that thing out, cut it open, so cut it and roll it out like a big jelly roll, pound it out a little bit to even it out, and I'm going to line it with that, and I'm going to roll it up and tie it with uh, butcher's twine and make that roast, and I think that's going to be fantastic. And that's the kind of thing, even though the days are like four hours longer, I'm just not doing it in July. It's just not going to happen. So whether it's starting out as a very novice and learning to make basic soups, I mean, or if it's it's taking your culinary skills to a higher level, this is just a great time of year to spend time in the kitchen. And again, when you look outside and go, it's cold and I don't want to go, that's when you don't mind being around a warm stove. And uh, we have a lot of fun with our cooking in the wintertime. And it, it really it kind of does pay off. And I think cooking's one of those, it's like a lifetime skill set of development. You're always able to find something you've never done before to, to, to try and to learn from. And it expands that whole Renaissance man feel. And uh, Renaissance woman is a thing too, gals. I'm not, not pushing you out of the way with that. I, you know, I just call the mailman a mailman, whether it's a male woman or a mailman. Because human, right? That's, that's what I mean by that. And anybody offended by that, get in front of the mirror and start slapping yourself in the face or go to an island where, people, where you won't bother other people that are normal. All right, next up... Um, good time to set up an indoor growing system, whether it's for starting seeds or it's actually for growing indoors. And I think the biggest things that you should think about growing indoors in the winter and at any time of the year, leafy greens and herbs, because you can use them all the time. It's a source of fresh stuff. It grows fast. It's quick turnover. It's cut and come again. And it works for indoor growing. You can grow a pepper plant indoors. It will be the most time-consuming and expensive pepper you've ever grown in your life. And it won't be any better than any other pepper you ever eat. I guess maybe you are getting a fresh pepper, pepper in winter. But thanks to international trade, we can already do that. But when you can pull fresh basil leaves off a plant just outside of your kitchen in winter, roll them up like a little cigarette... And cut ribbons. That's how you do. You want to do basil in a cool way. Get four or five big basil leaves. Stack them together so they're all matched up. And then roll them up. Like you're rolling a basil cigarette. A basil cigar. And then take a sharp knife and cut really, really thin. And when they unroll, you have these ribbons of basil. And you can take that and put that over the top of a salad. Even if the rest of the salad came from the store. It changes everything. Or you make a pasta dish, and right as you put the pasta dish onto the table, you take some chopped flat-leaf parsley, some basil ribbons, and you cover the top of that pasta dish. Right there, There's, there's a, a, a feeling of bringing spring into winter from that that's really cool. 
bridging those seasons together. So it's a great time to set up an indoor growing system, whether that be some sort of an aquaponics system, simply a, a system driven by some, some shop lights that are with T8s, or if it's something, if you have the perfect window and the window actually doesn't block the important rays of the sun, an older window or something like that, or if you have a sunroom you can use, this is just a fantastic time to do that. And if you stick with leafy greens, herbs, and stuff like that, you can get into production almost immediately. Microgreens, another great thing to grow indoors. You know, you can grow a little indoor growing system, and you can grow microgreens in a little bitty clamshell from some, some, some produce you bought in the store. You got the clamshell for free. And it can only take up a little bitty spot, but you can, you know, every night when you make your salad, the fact that you can cut some fresh uh, radish microgreens and some fresh sunflower microgreens and maybe something really cool like some borage microgreen and add that to your salad or even just make that a little micro salad on the side of your plate. And you're talking, you know, from the time you get lights and soil and seed to the time you're harvesting something like radish or sunflower when you're growing it indoors, seven to ten days. And once you figure out how much you use a week, you can just have it staggered and started and ready to go and just keep popping them in there. Because when you do something like sunflower microgreens, you do 80% of the growing not even under light. You pretty much throw them under light to green them up and, and finish them off. So that one little spot that you leave in your indoor growing system for two or three little varieties of microgreens, because you're growing it for yourself. You're not trying to compete with John Dowie and the microgreen mafia and sell to restaurants, right? So because of that, it's a totally different situation with how much you need to grow. The first time I grew uh, uh, you know, a full-size flat like the professional growers do of sunflower seed for Dorothy and I, I was like, well, the ducks are going to eat really good and I'm never going to do that again. So it's a good thing to do, and you can add microgreens to it. Microgreens, leafy greens, baby greens, um, herbs, things like that. Uh, also another good time to work on training your dogs. Um, I think there is this belief system that dog training is for puppies. And once a dog grows into a dog, you can't teach the old dog new tricks. Um, you, you, you can teach a dog as much as you have the patience understanding, skill, ability, and dedication to that animal to teach them at any age. I, I can teach new things to Max right now. You know, he's old and his, his hips hurt, so I really don't want to make him do anything he doesn't want to do anymore. And I don't want to convince him to do something he doesn't want to do. But Charlie and Lucy, I work with them all the time. And the winter is a great time to do that, especially on those days where you don't mind going outside. You get a little bit milder day. And that's something, you know, I think that should go throughout your whole year, but you can make some consorted efforts in the winter to do some training, and it's a good time to train dogs because dogs don't like heat. And, and when dogs are comfortable, they're easier to train. You know, and when you're cold at 40 degrees, your dog probably isn't, unless you have a dog where, you know, some dogs are. And so when you get out there and you're trying to train that animal to do a new behavior or just reinforce the training that they have, it's just a great time of year. So, Consider putting some time into the canines, and I did a couple episodes on training dogs. One's training dogs to fit in on the homestead, and the other one was called Understanding the Canine Brain. Uh, during the downtime, those might be two to dig into uh, and review if you want to work with your pups. And I do talk about how you can train dogs that are older, and they're not really, it's, not, it's just not true. Um, dogs in general want to please their master. And the master is the pack leader. 
and they want you to be pleased with them. And the, the way that you train a dog is make them understand what pleases you. It's more important than making them understand what displeases you. Because if you can give a dog a positive behavior, it occupies time that would be spent with a negative behavior. And if you can give a dog a positive behavior that it enjoys doing, that it will do when asked to do so, you can avoid negative behavior by putting the dog into that positive mode. And winter is a great time to work on your skill set as a dog trainer and your dog skill set as a pack member to your family. Uh, next, this is just the awesome time of year for construction projects. We talked earlier about planning and mapping them out, but man, I, I love building stuff in the winter. And the one thing about that is I got a shop building and I got a propane here. And when I look out there and go, oh, I don't want to go out there today, it's cold. I know that I can, I can, you know, talk, tittle my little ass out there to the, the shop building, light up the, the propane heater, tittle on back in the house, have a couple cups of coffee. By the time I go out there, it's going to be nice and warm out there. I'll go out there with my big Carhartt jacket on, and as soon as I get inside that shop, I'll be like, wow. Turn the heater down a little bit, take the jacket off, and you know, all my power tools are in there, and I can start building whatever it is. You know, this is a great time of year for building coops when you're doing the outside construction, but chicken tractors, rabbit hutches, you know, anything that can be built in one place and moved to another, really easy time of year to do it. You can put some tunes on. If you got a TV out in your shop, you can turn the TV on, watch football if it's still on, if you haven't got past that time of the year yet. Listen to, you know, you can put music on. Uh, you put stuff on the TV that you really don't put. I, there's a lot of times I do that in the shop. I'll put something on TV, like, you know, Hunting Channel or something like that. I'm not really paying attention or a cooking show or something. And every once in a while, I catch my ear and I'll, that one little thing, I get that thing out of it. Listen to the podcast while you're out there, you know. But this is just a great time of year for doing the actual construction projects. It's also really a great idea this time of year to hatch and brood your chicks for your next flock. This isn't as crazy as it sounds, and it's especially for people that don't have any laying birds of some variety right now. Quail are up to laying eggs in seven weeks. They're an aberration, so you can do them pretty much whenever you want. But I want you to just check this out right now. Most people get their chicks in March and April. If you get new chickens or ducklings in March 15th, and that's the day you get them, They will start producing eggs for you sometime around mid-August. By August, we're already starting to talk about the fall garden. If you get chicks on December 15th, and I'm not saying you should because that puts them right up against Christmas, but now you're looking at like March, no, April, early April, you're getting eggs. January, early May. February, June. See how that works? Okay. March into July to August time frame. Because it takes about 22 to 24 weeks, to part, depending on the actual breed, etc., for your, your chickens and ducks to start giving you eggs. So I actually prefer to start brooding birds in September or October. Because then very early spring, late winter, you're already getting eggs. That's why I did my ducks when I did them. That's why I settled on Rowan's, even though there was another breed I really would have preferred to have, because I knew that that would put us in the springtime when everything's taken off and all the herbs are going crazy and the wildflowers and all. We'd have duck eggs to go with everything. 
But, you know, there's still time to get those birds to where, you know, they're producing for you by early to mid-summer instead of next fall. Um, so if you want to, if you have your own flock and you do your own hatching, as long as you're prepared for this, it's a good time to do it. And, you know, since you're brooding, will go a long time indoors, and you need to maybe plan to do them later and longer inside than you would at different times of the year. Because one of the things I love about brooding in the spring or the end of summer is my brooder is a tractor, right? So I have a you know chicken tractor that really isn't a chicken tractor. It's a mobile brooder. And every flock of birds I've ever brought up has gone inside that little chicken tractor until they're old enough to not have to be in there. So I like that, but if you have the ability and capability of brooding indoors, or you have a shop where you can build a dedicated brooder space, or you build, you know, you can build a dedicated brooder space that really isn't. That sounds funny. So you build your panels of the walls of your brooder and the roof, and you build them with holes drilled in them and you use all thread or bolts or what have you, so that with a wing nut you can put it together, you brood your birds. When they're done brooding and they come out of there and you want the space back, you take your wing nuts off and we have four panels and they just stack up against the wall or in a shed somewhere. So this is not a bad time for doing it. I really prefer to start earlier so that you have birds fully feathered out and ready to go by winter. And that way when they're ready to come out of the brooder, they're ready to go out. But it's just something I thought I'd throw in. Um, couch surfing, Craigslist... Uh, next door, any online classifieds, newspaper ads, you name it. Man, this is a great time of year when you're trying to, like, I know I need a water tank. I know I need this. I know I need an IBC for this project I want to do later in the year, whatever it is. Just be careful you don't turn in a bum bum bottom bum bum bottom bum 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 bottom You're like, what is that? You're too young. This is the theme song from Sanford and Son. You don't want to turn into the junk man where you overdo this. But, man, when it comes to getting stuff for free and getting smoking deals on stuff, this is a great time because this is when this is when Harry, Harry has become the junk man. Harry has, he has, he has taken the Sanford and Son, Son theme into his bones. You know, you big dummy, right? So he has taken that in, and he's been doing it for years. But he doesn't do all the other stuff we talked about, so he's got a whole bunch of shit. And his wife's like, Harry, you need to get rid of this, and you need to get rid of that. He's like, oh, He puts it on Craigslist or Eva Hair or whatever, and he starts liquidating. And there is nothing that will motivate a seller like an angry wife. He's like, I don't even know why we have this anyway. So you get to capitalize on Harry's stupidity. Just don't become Harry. Great time for that. Another kind of shopping that's really fun to do this time of year is real estate shopping. And you can go to, you know, Lands of, you can go to uh, United Country, you can go to Realtor, you go to any of these sites, and just start looking at land. This is a great time. And if you are getting closer to being ready to buy, it's just something about, like, right after Christmas, all the way until everybody finally gets off their ass and does their tax returns, you know, March, April. It's kind of a lull, especially with land. Like, houses start to pick up pretty quick after the holidays, but land, vacant land, just languishes until, you know, spring when everybody starts thinking about it and gets some money in their hand from their refund, which isn't a refund. It's some of your stolen money back. So good time to check out real estate. But what I want to end up with is take some time during this period. Shut off all the noise. Get a good drink in your hand. 
whether that's a coffee, a tea, or an adult beverage, a good mead, a good cocktail, turn some good music on, sit down with someone that you really care about, and relax. There's, I, I, We don't get a lot of snow here, but there's something very, very beautiful about a winter's night with snow flying, good music and a good drink, and my wife next to me, and no one's allowed to interfere. If the phone rings and she tries to answer it, I will drill a hole through it with my drill. Like you don't, unless it's an emergency, and we'll know because they'll call more than once, don't touch it. Just let it be. Take time like that. Now, a lot of us do that. When I described that scene, I wasn't really thinking about it when I described it, but what came into my mind is the, 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 uh, the, one of the most classic Christmas movies of all time. You'll shoot your eye out, Christmas story. And as much as that's a comedy, and that's what the thing, the whole thing's a comedy. The very end of that movie, the kids are worn out, they're sleeping, kids that one of the little brothers on his fire truck or whatever, and the old man and the old lady, and if you're offended by old man and old lady, again, you don't understand my culture and where I come from with Ukrainian. That's that's such a... The oldest man, if he's 20 years old in the home, the oldest person in the home is the old man. And uh, it's a term of respect. There's a word for it that I can't pronounce right in Ukrainian that, that basically is that. So the old man and the old lady, they're sitting there with a couple glasses of wine, and the snow's falling, and the kids are asleep, and the house is quiet, and they're just content. That's kind of the end of that movie. And it's like one of the real sincere moments in a movie that's nothing but humor. And I think a lot of us kind of have that romantic fantasy of a white Christmas and that happening. And that's why it's in the movie and all. But that moment, that can happen any time. That doesn't happen have to just happen on you know the evening of December 25th or Christmas Eve after Santa has put all the stuff under the tree. By the way, if you take Santa away from children, you should be beaten with a frozen fish, something like a salmon, until you, you, you can't speak anymore. I know that recently happened. Um, but, you know, after Santa's done, his, you know, there's that, that, that kind of like, oh, this is the perfect time for that to happen. Hey, when opportunity presents itself, take advantage of the opportunity. Sometimes that's a very business-like mindset. That's the opportunity to get into a business or to you know, cut a deal or to get a purchase or something like that. Sometimes it's an opportunity to stop and enjoy yourself. This time of year, as long as you live in a place with any seasonality, will give you that opportunity if you're paying attention and ready to take the opportunity when it presents itself, just kind of like any opportunity. Those are my thoughts on this winter. I'd love to hear what your plans are for winter. You can let me know by email at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. I get enough of that. Maybe we'll do a whole show dedicated to what the audience has planned and answering your questions about how to best do that. You can also comment on the blog for today's episode. Uh, the blog does not get the comments it used to. Episode 2338, we got more people listening than ever. Uh, but I think that there's so much activity on Facebook and social media uh, that people tend to go there versus coming to the blog to comment. But the blog is still a great place to connect with people. Some really awesome contributors are there in the comments. You can always comment on the blog. Uh, I will always see any comment you make on the blog. In general, I respond to a lot of them, so you can do that. Uh, or, again, our social media is where the action is at, and the Survival Podcast Facebook Forum Man, you talk about a group of people that have each other's backs, take care of each other, and share information. Uh, that's the place to be. And just so you understand, we do have a Facebook page, 
And pages are kind of a legacy thing now on Facebook. They, uh, they charge me for my own people to see my own posts on my page. Uh, I'll put up a post and only a couple thousand people will see it, even though there's like 110,000 uh, people following it. Uh, but on our forum, it seems like you put something on the forum and a, a ton of people, the majority of people in the group, see it. So check us out there and let us know what your plans for winter are as well. If you do go by the blog today, again, the survivalpodcast.com, you'll see a picture of Nine Mile Farm in February from quite a few years ago. It's actually a still out of a video that I did with the property walkthrough with Josiah Wallingford. This was our first winter on the property, and you can see things have changed quite a bit, and you also see a dusting of that snow that I'm talking about. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. I, again, I do want to hear what your plans are for winter as we wrap up today. Uh, let me remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show, if you do get a lot out of it, is by going and doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Um, and you can see my items of the day. You can just get on over to Amazon and see the deals of the day. But if you start at tspaz.com, no matter what you eventually buy, you do help Survival Podcast and the work that we do. It's completely painless, so why wouldn't you do it? When it comes to my reviews, though, um, I review items I own and use. And that, that's you know 99% of what's there. Occasionally I'll get a request. I'll go do some research and information, talk to people I trust, and go, this isn't something I need, but this is what I would get if, if it was me. But 99 out of 100 items are items I own and I use every day and spend my own money on. And then every once in a while, an item that I do that with, that I put on T-SPAS, you know, it doesn't get picked up a couple times. It gets picked up hundreds of times. And in um, about three and a half years of doing product reviews, and I've recommended this product for over nine years before I started doing the reviews, uh, thousands of these have been purchased by our audience. And it's partly because it's so damn useful and partly because it's so damn cheap. It is the Gerber EAB Lite. A whole bunch of you went, yeah, I got like six of those because of you, Jack, and maybe I do need to get a couple more. Uh, the Gerber EAB, EAB stands for Exchange a Blade. This is a little folding razor knife. It looks like a money clip, and a lot of people use them as money clips when it's folded up, or you just clip it inside your pocket. It looks really good. It's 8 bucks. There's a little screw that goes in it, and that holds a standard razor knife blade. So you put a blade in there, you use it till it's dull, you take the screw out, you flip it around, you put it back in, use the other side. When it's dull, you throw the razor blade away. Um, a lot of people ask me, Jack, why do, why do you carry like you know a $700 knife and then you carry this little $8 knife. Well, because I don't want to take that $700 knife and stick it through the gooey tape on an Amazon box would be for one thing. Uh, but I always have an absolute razor-sharp little knife on me, and my favorite thing to do with these things is give them away. I'll be somewhere, somebody will need a knife, I'll pull that out, I'll go, that's pretty cool, what is it? I'll tell them about it and just throw a word or two about being prepared in there, and I'll say something like, you know what, I have a website. If you'll check my website out and listen to a couple episodes, I'll give it to you. So I use it as viral marketing. Um, but you can use it for viral marketing, not my show, but just preparedness. This is a great tool. I've never given one of these to anybody where like, I don't really need this. You can keep it. Everyone's like, wow, this is great. They're eight bucks. It's also the number one TSP community stocking stuffer. I've heard from so many people that I buy one of these for everybody every year and you put it in their little Christmas gifts or whatever because everybody likes them and sooner or later they lose them or they give them away too. And so they're always well received. Eight bucks, the Gerber EAB Lite. It's part of my EDC or everyday carry. And I'm telling you, dozens of people have come up to me at meetings, events, workshops, and be like, hey, check it out. And they pull out their EAB Lite 
and uh, you know, there's there's streamlight stylus flashlight. Like those are the two things that like uh, have become really icons within our our community. But check it out. Uh, the Gerber EAV Light TSP item of the day, and you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. We're in uh, One Hit Wonder Week, and I have a song for you today that, even though they are a one hit wonder, I bet you've heard it. Especially if you if you listen to music in the 1980s, you had to have heard this song. You probably liked it. Uh, it's from Dexy's Midnight Runners. They're out of the UK, and the song is Come On Eileen. Uh, Come on, Eileen is a, is a, is an interesting song. I didn't really know the story behind it until today, because uh, I looked them up on Song Facts uh, when I got the uh, the song from John Adam. And uh, here's what it says about: it. written by Dexy's lead singer Kevin Rowland, trombone player Jim Patterson, and guitarist Al Archer. This song was an enormous hit, going to number one in America, the UK, and Australia. While this song fit nicely in the 80s music time capsule, it sounded nothing like the other hits of the era. There are no synthesizers in the song, but there's banjo, accordion, fiddle, and saxophone. Um, in, this, in our interview with Kevin Rowland, he explained how the song came together. We wanted a good rhythm, and we found one. Lots of records we liked had that rhythm, Concrete and Clay, It's Not Unusual by Tom Jones. Lots of records we like had that bump, ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. We felt it was a good rhythm. We came up with a chord sequence ourselves and just started singing melodies over it. I remember thinking, we're really on to something here. And then I came up with that two-ra-loo-ra, and I remember thinking, wow, this is sounding really good. You get a feeling when you're writing a song, something happens at the end of each, at the end, it kind of finished itself. But this is the part that I thought was interesting, especially as a as a recovering Catholic. I grew up as a Catholic, and I call myself today a recovering Catholic. Um, this song is based on a true story. Eileen was a girl that Kevin grew up with. Their relationship became romantic when the pair was about 13, and according to Roland, it turned sexual a year or two later. Roland was raised Catholic and served as an altar boy in church. Sex was a taboo subject and considered dirty. Something that fascinated him. When he wrote this song, Roland was expressing the feelings of an adolescent enjoying his first sexual relationship and dreaming of being free from the structures of a uh, button-down society. Uh, and one line in the song that kind of uh, brings that to be real clear is, You in that dress, my thoughts I confess, verge on dirty. The song describes the thin line between love and lust. As a young Catholic, um, raised in the church, and always a rebel, a rebel from the beginning, but still, you know, when you're born into something, you're taught something, you believe something, that type of thing. And again, I'm not putting anybody's faith down. I'm just saying for me, that was my personal journey away from organized religion. That's where it began. Um, I always found this very, like, this concept that, you know, you're not supposed to be with a girl to just be honestly crazy. It just never made any sense to me. I guess it was one of the main reasons I rebelled. I also, I've, I've never said this, I think, on on the air before. It's not I've never said it publicly. For a very short time, Jack Spirico was an altar boy. Yes, I was. I didn't really enjoy doing it. Uh, so much to the dismay of my grandparents, uh, I quit. Uh, but yes, for a very brief period of time, I was an altar boy. <laughs> and people are just going, what? I no. Um, but yeah, uh, so th this song facts uh, write-up, a lot of times it's like a paragraph or two. It's like scroll, scroll, and scroll uh, through the song facts. So I've linked, if you want to know more 
about this song fact uh, or this song, Dexy's Midnight Runners, Come On Eileen. Uh, you can find a link in the show notes so they'll learn more about it. Uh, some One other little thing is uh, there is uh, an actress in the video who's the sister of a girl from Bananarama. There's like tons of like info there. The other thing I want to do for Dexy's Midnight Runners here is a little bit of mitigation on the one-hit wonder. Uh, in the United States, Dexy's Midnight Runners are a one-hit wonder with Come On Eileen. Uh, they also had a song that came out in a, their first album called Gino, which was a number one hit in the UK. And while they never had a number one hit again after those two, they had several like number four, number seven, number nine in the UK, Ireland, and other markets. So they were far more successful as a band in their home country of the United Kingdom than they were in the U.S. market. And so they are a one-hit wonder that really is a little bit more, just to be fair to this band, which was a really cool band with a completely different take on things, and I thought they were really uh, great in some of the music that they put together. Um, I was a fan. If everybody was like me, they probably would have had a few more top ten hits in the United States. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.